Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Namaste. You are now in the Funk Soul Cafe, a cool, hot, soulful radio show for artists, writers, and so much more, hosted by yours truly, Robert Batista. So sit back, grab a nice, warm, and soulful cup of java or chai, and listen and enjoy. Today, we celebrate and acknowledge Veterans Day with a dynamic and special show. Today's guest has an appropriate story to tell and share with the world. His name is Robert Weiderman, and his just-released book is called Unexpected Prisoner, Memoir of a Vietnam POW. Namaste, Robert Weiderman, and welcome to the Funk Soul Cafe. Thank you, Robert, and I believe I'll have an Americano. So uh, let's first start off, Robert, by taking your Java order. We have a wonderful variety of fine espressos, cappuccinos, and lattes, and we also have herbal teas for those tea lovers. So what's your fancy, Robert? You mentioned you have an Americano? I believe so. I would like an Americano. Okay, great. Let me get that for you. Okay, here you go. Thank you. Enjoy it. Robert, first off, I'd like to say happy Veterans Day. Uh, I am a veteran as well. Uh, so happy Veterans Day to all the veterans. Um, so good having you on the Funk Soul Cafe. Before, Robert, we get into your insightful new book, please give our audience an insight into who you are and what your background is. Uh, yes, uh, I was born in Montreal, Canada. I'm a dual citizen of the United States. 
My father flew the hump in uh, World War II, and that's uh, how I got involved in aviation. And uh, he taught me how to fly when I was like 14 years old. And then uh, I lived in upstate New York. Uh, all my friends uh, in uh, Meridian, Mississippi, think I have a speech defect. And uh, <laughs> I graduated uh, my senior year of high school. My father sent me to the Manlius Military School in Syracuse, New York. And then after I graduated, uh, he was transferred back to Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, he was with Minneapolis Honeywell. And I went to school in the University of Toledo for two years studied chemical engineering, couldn't stand it. But uh, in my uh, sophomore year, the Navy uh, showed up with this Naval Aviation Cadet Program, and uh, they saved me. Uh, I took all the tests. I did, I did really well on the aptitude. I got into the Navy Flight Program with only two years of college. I reported to uh, Pensacola in 1963 in October, one day before my 20th birthday, and I uh, went through, I got my wings in uh, Kingsville, Texas in, 19, in May of 1965, and then had orders out to Lemoore, California, uh, transitioned to the Navy A-4 Skyhawk, which is a single-seat, uh, single-engine uh, airplane. And in January of 1966, uh, I was sent out to Yankee Station on the USS Enterprise, and I survived that cruise, came home in uh, June uh, met my wife. Uh, we got married in July. I know that sounds a little quick. And then uh, in January of 19 <laughs> in January of 1967, I was sent back uh, uh, to, to Vietnam on the USS Hancock. And uh, on May the sixth, 1967, uh, the North Vietnamese bagged me. And uh, that's when my, my uh, prison started, and I came home in 1973 in March. So you say the North Vietnamese bagged you. Did they shoot you down? Did they shoot your airplane down and then capture you, or how did that happen? Actually, to be really honest, I think I had a hydraulic failure because we rolled in uh, at about 11,000 feet, and as we rolled out, I felt a metallic click, and the airplane kept on uh, uh, kept on uh, rolling. Uh, that day, there was no enemy defenses, no MiGs, no SAMs, no AAA, and we were at 11,000 feet, which is really too high for the small arms to get you. Uh, the A4 right. did have a bad habit of, uh, in a bomb run, uh, you get a partial disconnect. We had the hydraulic control system, and we had a backup, which was a manual system. But over, over 200 knots, the manual system didn't work because the stick forces were too great. Uh, I have described what happened. And because it was so sudden, uh, most of the people I talked to think I had a complete uh, hydraulic failure uh, as I rolled out of the, uh, uh, of the bomb run. So let's talk, Robert, about the culture of America leading up to your going to Vietnam. You, as you said, joined the Navy as an aviation cadet in 1963. Ironically, you joined one month before the pivotal turning point in our nation with John Kennedy's assassination in November of 1963. Robert, talk about your mindset at the time of your going into the Navy program. Uh, to be honest, I just wanted to fly airplanes. My dad flew airplanes. He taught me how to fly. I really enjoyed it. 
for me, uh, aviation, uh, flying, it, it's like the great escape. You know, you, you don't have to deal with people on the ground. Uh, but that was my mindset. I was not really uh, that uh, 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 interested in the military. But if you wanted to fly for the Navy, uh, that's what it was. And I should say I wasn't interested in war. But if you wanted to fly for the Navy, uh, there was a chance that you were going to go to war. And that's exactly what happened. As I recall, well, I'm a, most of go ahead, sir. Uh, uh, before I got bagged, it seems to me that most of the newspapers and all that uh, they were for the war. Uh, they had the Tonkin Golf incident, and everybody's all wired up and ready right. to go. And I noticed uh, when I came home, everything had com- changed completely. Uh, yes, it was like a 180. Um, um, Robert, what type of effect did JFK's killing? have on you and where were you exactly when it happened i know exactly where i was i was in uh i was in the uh cafeteria at pensacola i'd been down there uh m- maybe uh less than a month and uh the our captain uh, marine captain who was in charge of our battalion uh, he announced that the president uh, ha- had been had been killed and, of course, the thing that went through my mind was, you know, those dirty Russian communists, uh, they're behind all this stuff. Uh, so that's kind of what was going through my mind. Right. And you did say you were about 20 years old at the time. Exactly. Then Lyndon Johnson becomes president, and the Vietnam War escalates. And you are, as you said, sent over. And then you were sent over again after you got married. Um, how was your mindset when you were deployed there? Did you, I mean, Vietnam at the time, as you said, when you first went there, everyone was gung-ho. Um, and you said you were basically the same. Did you feel any angst or trepidation? Uh, on my first cruise, uh, I'll tell you, that. that you know, that, that might have been the highlight of my life. I mean, flying uh, combat missions off of air, uh, U.S. aircraft, the nuclear-powered carrier Enterprise. That was the first nuclear-powered aircraft carrier in combat. Well, I flew with, they were great people. That was really a highlight of my life, and I was really into it. Uh, I will tell you the first half a dozen times that I actually went over the beach of North Vietnam, I thought that, uh, I thought that the North Vietnamese were going to shoot me down instantly. And after right. about six missions, after about six missions, then you start to realize, well, you know, maybe you can survive this. I compare that. I used to be a trial lawyer in Orlando, Florida. I, I uh, uh, did criminal law, and uh, you know, it's like my first six trials. It, it takes, you know, m- my first trial is like, where am I? You know. Right. And then after right. about six trials in the courtroom, you start to feel a little more comfortable. That was kind of the experience. And then when I survived that first, uh, we came home in June of 1966. And, and, uh, you know, when I survived that first cruise, I was really happy on top of the world. I came home, uh, got married, uh, you know, saw my parents there in Cleveland, Ohio. But I have to tell you, when I went back over my second cruise after I got married and I got over there, it was like, you know, what am I doing here? I mean, you know, I can get killed. (laughs) You know, because I really had a nice life uh, back home, and so I right. started. Uh, it was more of a selfish thing at, at that point. So, on your second cruise, Robert, 
how long were you on that cruise before your capture? And, and how many missions would you say you flew um, before you were captured that second time? Okay, the second cruise, I was very disappointed because in between cruises, we had a little training program and we had a lot of paperwork. And I kept thinking, well, you know, I need, once we get back out there in the combat zone, the, the paperwork is going to stop. But, you know, it actually got worse on my second cruise, so I was real disappointed about that. Uh, my first cruise, I had something like, uh, I believe, about 94, 96 missions on the Enterprise. And my second cruise, I only had about 40 extra missions. I had a total of 134, including the day I got bagged. Uh, but my second cruise, I mean, you know, January, February, March, April, I got down in the first uh, week of May. I was only getting like maybe 10 missions a month. And I think I had four night missions. Well, that would have been one night mission a month. Whereas my first cruise, I was getting like, you know, two-day missions and a night mission uh, six days out of the week. So, uh, yeah, I was, I was, it was a letdown, my second cruise. So you were a POW for six years, as, as you stayed. Talk about how you stayed sane during this time. And, how was the camaraderie with the other prisoners? Sure. Uh, I'm not sure I stayed sane, but uh, I did not believe in the Lord then. I've changed my mind since. And, uh, but at the time, I, you know, it was really my wife got me through it, uh, thinking about my family. Uh, my, right. greatest concern, what, my greatest concern was uh, when I got bagged, I was 23 years old. I wasn't too concerned about the North Vietnamese killing me. Uh, actually, only seven POWs died in Hanoi the whole time I was up there. And uh, from the POW center in, in Pensacola, uh, only 28 prisoners died in all of North Vietnam. So if you made it to Hanoi, right. you had a pretty good chance of surviving. Uh, that said, uh, I forgot where I was, but... Uh, yeah, I had that had about forty minutes. It was just a kind of kind of a letdown. That second cruise. Um, right. And the second part of that question was, how was the camaraderie with the other POWs? Uh, the camaraderie with the POWs. Uh, well, it sort of depended. Uh, we had to live in uh, a twelve by twelve or a fifteen by fifteen foot room with uh, two or three other POWs. There was no ventilation. For the first three years, we only got out uh, maybe a, uh, one hour a day out of 24 to, to wash the dishes and, and give ourselves a bath. Uh, you know, every time we got new roommates, which we did every six to nine months, we got new roommates. Uh, that was that was great, you know, for about two or three months. And then, and then it starts getting boring again because we had nothing else to do. It was sort of like, well, let's have conversation number 24, you know. Uh, uh, to, to be honest with you, I was probably pretty hard to live with, and uh, my problem was really not with the North Vietnamese. I mean, I knew that they knew that I knew that if they wanted me to do something for them, uh, they could get me to do it, and that was pretty much true with with everyone. Uh, right. But uh, some of some of my roommates, I mean, you're starting to deal with personalities. Uh, like this one, this one fellow was uh, from El Paso, Texas. And he loved the hot weather. Well, I grew up in upstate New York, and I did not like hot weather. 
So when it gets to be 120 degrees and my friend from El Paso is doing jumping jacks and all that stuff and sweat all over the room, raising the temperature, you know, that doesn't make me very happy. Uh, on the other hand, in the wintertime, he's all curled up in his blankets and I'm just having the time of my life. I'm just having the time of my life, you know, which, which uh, I might've been rubbing it in a little bit, you know, but it was that kind of stuff. And you just had different, per- you had different ranks. You had different ages. Uh, right, I was right, 23. Right. I-, I was 23. The average person, believe it or not, was like 39. Uh, so, wow. you know, we had that stuff, but I did learn a lot. Uh, I learned a lot about people, uh, I think when I went to law school, the first case we had was you've got uh, three people in a boat out in the middle of the ocean, uh, uh, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, and you've got enough. Uh, you got to if if one if you cannibalize one of the people in the boat, the other two will survive. And the question is, which one are you going to cannibalize? So everybody makes an argument that you need the butcher, you need the baker, you need the candlestick maker. Uh, when it gets right down to where the rubber meets the road, I believe that's life. And I sort of experienced that uh, in the POW camp. So I'm just curious, um, were you, you said you were in Hanoi, were you in the infamous Hanoi Hilton? I was. Okay, I'm glad we got that established. Um, So when you were finally released, Robert, and came home, I'm curious to know what was the first thing you did. I believe the first thing I did was I hugged my wife. <laughs> uh, she was still waiting, which was pretty amazing, uh, especially when we consider that the divorce rate a year and a half after we came home was like 84%, uh, which was a lesson to a lot of people. Yeah. But I can remember I came home to the Philadelphia Naval Hospital, and uh, her family lived in Cherry Hill, New, New Jersey, across the river. And uh, I think the first morning uh, uh, I went shopping by myself and uh, uh, at, at the Navy Exchange, and I think I got myself a green shirt and, and uh, candy cane striped pants. And I knew that I was in big trouble, so I called her. I said, you know, I need some help. So we went to the Cherry Hill Mall <laughs> that, that, that evening. Candy cane striped pants. (laughs) I have to, I have to tell you, uh, they had the Superfly guys out there. You know, I'd never seen a Superfly before, and uh, I mean the colors were very bright. I was attracted to uh, candle shops, record shops, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, My wife actually said uh, that the Superfly outfit that his was pretty conservative. You know. Uh, anyway, <laughs> compared to uh, what you had, <laughs> yeah, 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 and uh, you know, you it gave. was just it was a great it was a great experience. Yeah, you gave Superfly a run for the money. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> so, Robert, I'm guessing you went through a period of processing everything that happened when you were in Vietnam and in captivity. How long did it take you to figure out and decide you wanted to write your story? And why did you feel you needed to write it? Was it to give some type of closure to it or leave a legacy for your family? Uh, To be honest, I wasn't thinking about writing a book when I came home. I wanted to fly for the airlines, but uh, they were all laying off because of the 1973 Israeli-Arab War. 
so uh, the Navy says, we'll send you to the Navy Post-Grad School in Monterey, California. And of course, both my wife and I, we, we liked that. And she, she wanted to start a family. So we moved to Monterey, and I studied international relations for a couple of years. And during that time, one of the professors introduced me to a fellow named Bradwell Scott, who was a freelance journalist, and he was also a, a journalist for, uh, for one of the papers there in uh, Monterey, California. And we sat down, he interviewed me, we got 30 hours of uh, audio tape, and then, he, and then he wrote the book. It was like 252 pages. And in 1975, uh, he sent a copy to the Navy because I was still in active duty and, and you're required to do that. Otherwise, the Navy gets all your profits and maybe worse things could happen to you. At any rate, uh, they wrote back and said, uh, uh, you know, don't publish it, which kind of upset me. And not only right. that, they told me that, that they sent my manuscript to my roommates and to Admiral Stockdale. Well, those guys wrote books, and they never sent me their books for their for my comment or approval. At any rate, the book sort of died there. And then uh, I moved to uh, Fort Collins, Colorado about four years ago. One of my sons was here. Uh, he's got four children. And uh, I'm here a year after that, and I've got two granddaughters through him. But... When I was still in Meridian, Mississippi, where I lived for 24 years, the longest place I've ever, ever lived, uh, about six years ago, uh, I started writing a book. And it took me four years to write 100 pages. I am not a great wow. writer. I am mainly because I like to go out there and walk in the foothills of Colorado and, and, and play golf. Uh, uh, sitting down is, is just not my thing. At any rate, I discovered right. writing is very, very hard. Uh, and, and my heart goes out, and I have great admiration for people that can, you know, put a story on paper. At any rate, uh, two years ago, I was 71, and the thought crossed my mind that at the rate I was writing, <laughs> someone might put me in the ground before I finished the book. And, uh, <laughs> of course, <laughs> yeah, and... Uh, the reason I started that sucker was because I wanted something down on paper for my grandchildren, something permanent, and also for my sons. So I turned it over to Carol Lopez Lee, who now lives in Ventura, California. She used to live in Denver. And I gave her uh, the 100 pages I wrote. I still had those 30 hours of uh, 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 CDs, audio, audio CDs. Right, and I had right. those transcribed to 700 pages of transcript. So she took all that and she started writing. And two years later, she'd finished the book. Uh, I edited each chapter as she did it. And then when the book was finished, uh, I edited the whole thing. I had the lady that was a court reporter edit it. And I also had one of my daughter-in-laws who, she's a doctor here, uh, a family doctor, but her her minor was writing, and she she really enjoys writing, so she did a great job uh, editing my book, and the book was just published uh, this year. So, Robert, speaking of your book, you have graciously agreed to read part and from your great book for us. Can you uh, set up the piece before you read it and let us know what you'll be reading? Uh, yes, this will be about the first uh, half a dozen pages from the afterward. It'll take about five minutes, 
And uh, the people that have read my book, uh, they really like it. In fact, some of the questions I get asked, well, how, you know, authors have big egos. Uh, how can you take net? You think you can deal with negative criticism? I says, I don't know, because I've never had negative criticism on this book. Uh, it's all five stars on Amazon. But uh, they right. seem to like the afterword. That The afterword's got the punch, and I'm ready to read it anytime you're ready to go. Okay, Robert, let's do it. Okay, afterword. A different POW experience. The POWs who landed in Hanoi's prison camps can thank God the treatment was as good as it was. I know some never saw it that way. Only seven prisoners died in Hanoi. Two stopped eating. One died from a combination of ejection wounds, exposure, and the Vietnamese rope trick. One died during an escape attempt, and one succumbed to typhoid. I am not sure what happened to the other two. In America's Civil War, 13,000 Union prisoners died at the Confederacy's infamous Camp Sumter near Andersonville, Georgia. In World War II, the Japanese chopped off two American heads for every mile of a 65-mile baton death march. Of the more than 27,000 American POWs in Japan, between 27 and 40 percent died in captivity. In that same war, Germany admitted that three million Russians died in German prison camps. In turn, the Russians captured 95,000 Germans at Stalingrad, and only 4,000 returned home. With the exception of some of America's prisoners in World War II, it may be that never in the history of warfare have POWs been treated so well as we were in North Vietnam. Prisoners held by the Viet Cong in South Vietnam were another story. I won't speak to that because I wasn't there. Although I suffered painful physical punishments, which some call torture, I've always had a hard time calling what the North Vietnamese did to me torture. It was a bad experience, but it could have been much worse. Although we successfully established communication in each prison camp, it was not perfect or consistent. Many POWs later talked about how we were always able to communicate despite North Vietnamese Army's efforts to stop us, presumably because of the great leadership we had. On the contrary, the NVA leadership proved they could shut down our communications whenever they wanted, which they did after the escape attempt. Some key personnel did not communicate for two months. It was clear to me that many Naval Academy graduates and senior officers did whatever it took to please their bosses. Such sycophants taught me one of the most important lessons I learned from my Vietnam experience. There will always be people who pursue power by ingratiating themselves to those in power without pausing to assess the goals of those leaders. I came to understand this as a POW, but I have witnessed it in all institutions since. Corporations, bureaucracies, schools, churches, you name it. My sense is that most pilots had huge egos, me included, which probably drove us to become fighter pilots in the first place. The most hardline of the POWs had the most problems in prison. The North Vietnamese forced them to make the most confessions and visit the most delegations to feed the Vietnamese propaganda machine. It is well documented that many American political and military leaders knew we were fighting an unwinnable war, but said nothing because they feared jeopardizing their careers. Those same leaders demeaned and discredited the courageous Americans who publicly opposed the Vietnam War, especially big names like Jane Fonda. When Jane Fonda came to visit us in 1972, we were, we were being treated well, just like she said we were. 
We went outside several hours a day, ate three meals a day, and received regular letters and packages from home. The barrage of war protesters put pressure on the government to end the war, and but for them, we would still be over there. POWs who supported the war were encouraged to speak out, while those who did not were not encouraged to speak out. That policy continues today and is one reason we have an inflated view of the importance of funding America's military might. We primarily receive the viewpoint of those invested in maintaining power. After the war, I talked to an Army colonel in Tampa, Florida, who helped plan the Sante raid. He told me that the American military knew the camp was empty 30 days before the raid, but our leadership weighed the costs and benefits of going through with it anyway, and the benefits won. They knew they would recover no prisoners. Such was the American need to keep its own propaganda machine running. A wartime nation. Our armed services have not won a conflict since World War II, yet we keep waging war as if it were the national pastime. One reason this happens is because so many of our military leaders want to perpetuate their power. Little has changed in the military since we lost in Vietnam. We continue to pursue costly wars that yield questionable results. The invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan, like Vietnam, were monumental blunders motivated by American hubris. Once again, we have preyed on countries that we view as weaker than ours and have tried to impose our will on them, only to discover that the will of other cultures to chart their own course is stronger than we anticipated. How's that, Robert? That's fantastic. One five-star review from Amazon customer states in part of your book. Robert Wedderman's important new book, Unexpected Prisoner, needs to be required reading by every up-and-coming leader in our country. He starts with a narrative of his time as a POW in Hanoi, giving us an atypical picture of what their life was really like. Then he asserts and documents that never in the history of modern warfare have American POWs had as low a mortality rate as in North Vietnam. Finally, in an afterward, which for me was the book's main message, he indicts our current policies and lays out a better way forward for America. His book will be appreciated by veterans and non-veterans alike for its cognate views. Robert, how did that one one review make you feel? It made me feel terrific, as 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 all the other ones did as well. And thank you for reading that, Robert. So let me ask you, uh, you mentioned in what you just read in your afterward um, about losing in Vietnam. You, you quoted lost in Vietnam. Now, I remember Nixon had said we had peace with honor, but yet, as you just put, we lost in Vietnam. What are your feelings about how that whole ending was, how it ending, and how that conflict and terminology happened to us? Uh, I thought it was a goat rope, Robert. Uh, I think there's stuff out there that Nixon admitted that he did not want to – the reason the war went on so long under him was because he did not want to be the uh, first American president to lose a war. Other people said that they just wanted an honorable peace, and what that meant, they needed a decent interval 
In other words, from the time we left till the time it was taken over by the North Vietnamese, that decent interval would have been uh, right at two years. Uh, I mean, it. you know, a lot of POWs say we want, you know, that the, the bombing saved us and all that stuff. And if we'd have, if we'd have bombed them and invaded North Vietnam, uh, we, we would have won the war. But when you think about it, uh, you know, uh, the Vietnamese, they beat the French. They beat us, two colonial powers. And then they went into, I believe it was uh, Laos or Cambodia one, because all the killing going on down there after the war ended. Right. And, and, and they, right. Clean, they cleaned those people out. And then somewhere like, uh, uh, I think uh, Vietnam fell in 1975. In like 1978, the Chinese invaded North Vietnam with 250,000 troops. And the North Vietnamese, after fighting all these years, it only took them three weeks to kick the Chinese out. And if you want to compare that to, to Korea, you know, the Chinese came across with the Yalu River uh, uh, 38th parallel with, with 250,000 Chinese, the same number they came across with in North Vietnam. And uh, it took us uh, three years to beat them back. So uh, the Vietnamese are pretty tough people. Yes, yes, yes. I've heard so many stories about that. Uh, and you're right. At one time... At one point, I believe Vietnam was called French Indochina uh, when it was basically taken over by the French. Is that correct? That is correct. Right, right. I remember that history. Um, so, Robert, um, whenever a person writes his memoirs, he has to relive just about everything that happened, and that can be painful to do. How was it for you? What emotions did you go through reliving your past as you were basically writing and, and talking about your story? You know, it was more of a catharsis for me. Uh, okay. When I came home, when I came home, except for Bradwell Scott, uh, the gentleman uh, who has since died, uh, uh, he was the only male friend I had for like seven years. You know, after those little rooms with men, uh, in those cramped quarters, uh, I, <laughs> I didn't like men, Robert. <laughs> and it took me seven years. It, 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 it took, it took me seven years, uh, you know, to start developing, uh, uh, you know, those relationships again. But when I was in Tampa, Florida, I was working for Dun and Bradstreet. Uh, I went to see a fellow named David. I forgot his last name, but he was a counselor at the veterans center. And he told me, he says, you know, he says, you got to talk about this stuff. Right. And uh, that is uh, uh, what I do. And it really is. It's a catharsis. I really have no problems talking about, and people sometimes are surprised, you know. I have no problems at all. In fact, my advice to people coming home from Iraq or Afghanistan is they got to talk about their experiences. I didn't do it at first uh, because, number one, you know, you tell somebody you're a POW in Vietnam and they go, yeah, right, dude. You know, like they don't believe you. Yeah. And if right, they do right. believe you, they, if they do believe you, they think you're crazy. So I, I just didn't <laughs> yeah. talk about it. I, I just didn't talk about it until uh, I met David. You know, Robert, uh, I've seen a lot of Rambo and, and Chuck Norris movies. And in those movies, a lot of times they state that they are still prisoners held in Vietnam. 
or that there are prisoners that don't, or there are people back there that don't realize the war is over. Uh, what do you say to those people? Uh, I certainly understand what they're going through. I have friends here that are that way. And, uh, well, you say the wrong word and they get, they get going. Like we had one gentleman, I, I go to the VA every week for group counseling, you know, and almost all of these, these people are infantry people. They're not aviators. And, uh, I gave, uh, one, uh, uh, one of them a compliment on one of his grandchildren. What, what a nice young man. And this guy started off on, he starts crying and, you know, we're in Vietnam and, it was a Buddhist country, and we had uh, uh, the government what, what was a Baudai, what was Catholic, you know. And he was just going on and on and on and crying and really upset that we lost so many people over there uh, uh, supporting that government. So, you know, different, right. people take it different. different people take it different different ways. I've got PTSD. And uh, that's one of the reasons uh, when we were in Monterey, California, my, we argued. We had a 70-pound Doberman Pinscher. And when we uh, argued, uh, that Doberman Pinscher would hide behind the sofa. And wow. at, the same time, at the same time, my two sons, Eric and Derek, uh, uh, one was two years old, one was four years old. And I came from a family, uh, uh, you know, my dad was a big drinker, and he beat my mother up. And, all, and, and they fought, you know, for as long as I can remember. And I didn't want uh, my children to, to go through that. So eventually, after about five years, uh, Pat and I, uh, we separated. And, you know, that's when I came to the Lord. Uh, people laughed because being a POW didn't bring me to the Lord. Going through a divorce did. So I guess the right. logical conclusion is going through a divorce is more emotionally devastating <laughs> than being a prisoner in Vietnam. You know, go figure. Robert, um, can you compare your veteranship and being a veteran and and the people of your contemporary time to these veterans now coming home from Iraq, coming home from Afghanistan with so many issues um, uh, and suicide being one of them? Um, Can you do a comparison or would you say it's basically the same thing? Well, when I came home, uh, you know, the Navy was only concerned about their image. They really weren't concerned about us as individuals. And I'm, I'm, I don't even think we, we heard of the word post-traumatic stress uh, disorder in those days. That, that's a relatively new thing. Uh, I think it was called shell shock back then. Okay, yeah, I, I, think, I think you're right. Uh, I know we, we just buried a guy here a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he, uh, he was a Marine. He was in... Uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, and he's been home five years, but he's always had issues, and he ended up uh, shooting himself. And I went to I went to his memorial service down here at Veterans Plaza. There was about 150 people there, and uh, you know when I go to a funeral, they're all old people. These people were all like uh, just graduated from college or that age, you know. He yes. was uh, yes. he was he was 25 and. There was about 10 or 15 people got up there, and they each spent five minutes talking about this guy. And he, uh, uh, I guess he was well-liked. He had girlfriends. Uh, he had a good job. and But he was just struggling with his PTSD. He drank a little bit, not bad. But right. uh, 
his the preacher was actually his uncle from Tennessee. And he told us, he says, you know, he says, don't try to figure this out. <laughs> it is what it is. And, and that's that's right. I, I cannot wrap my head around anything like that. So I'm glad that, you know, I was a 22 uh, veterans a day end up killing themselves, something like that. And, yeah, uh, yeah I, I, you know, it's hard for me to relate to it, but I, I know it's an issue out there. Uh, my own feeling is uh, it wouldn't apply with, with in Paul's case, but uh, getting having a job when you come home, uh, not having a job, I think really tears you up. And uh, you know, people are—I don't know about now—but they used to be reluctant to hire Vietnam veterans because they thought we were all crazy. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say, Robert, having a job and having some type of support. Support, whether it be a family, friends, something, having some type of support also would help immensely. Anyway, um, in closing, Robert, uh, what's next for Robert Weidemann? Speaking engagements or maybe even a screenplay and movie of Unexpected Prisoner? What other options do you have in the fire coming up? Do you want to be my agent to get a movie, Robert? (laughs) I have written this book, and as I understand it, you don't make money on the book. You make money if someone makes a movie, and then they hire you right. as a consultant. They hire you as a consultant, or you can spin it off in the speaking engagements. I know that if I was right. willing to leave Colorado, Colorado or, or Wyoming, uh, I could probably do pretty good. But I'll tell you, that is work. I am 73. I've got six grandchildren. And one of them alone is nine, and he plays five hockey games a week. Uh, wow! These guys are these guys are killing me. And not only that, if you're going to make money and go somewhere outside of Colorado or Wyoming, speaking, you got to jump on an airplane. And I'll be honest, Robert, I despise the airlines these days. I mean, it's a cattle call, and yeah. uh, yeah. down my freaking my blood pressure goes up, and going through security. Uh, I'm going to visit right, my brother. Right. Uh, it's it's, it's uh, week after next. Uh, he lives in Fallon, Nevada, just beside of Reno. I could jump on an airplane in Denver and be in Reno in an hour. But I hate flying the airline so bad that I'm going to jump in my car, and it's going to be a two-day drive out to Interstate wow. 80. Uh, but it, it's it's a beautiful drive. I've done it before. Very relaxing, you know. Uh but what's in store for Good me? For you, uh, I, I mean, I just start. We just started marketing this book. Uh, the ladies are doing great. There's a lady in Tennessee. There's a lady here in Denver. Uh, it's not cheap. But uh, a friend of mine wrote a book. In fact, he was uh, Afghan uh, special forces veteran. He came back. I don't know, eight or nine years ago. But this lady in Tennessee, uh, Marianne McComb, uh, he told me that. Uh, he went through her and sold 50,000 books in the first year. Uh, Robert, if I could sell half that, <laughs> I would be uh, in really, really, well, I'm in good shape now, but I'd be in even better shape uh, with that. So that, that's my so, next thing is, is, to, is to really market this book. So um, speaking of marketing, contact information, um, how do people get a hold of you to order the, your book? Um, how do they order your book? Give out all the information on how your book can be ordered and your contact information. 
Yes, if uh, if you Google Weidemann unexpected prisoner, it comes up on Amazon. Go to the Amazon website. You can get the Kindle version. You can order the uh, the paperback version. Those are the only two versions. That's what I would recommend. I don't think any bookstores are carrying it yet, uh, but the way Marianne is or Mary Glenn is working, uh, uh, that might change uh, here in the future. Uh, I have a website. Can you spell Weidemann for our, our audience? Yes, I can. It's W-I-D-E-M-A-N. W-I-D-E-M-A-N. And my website is www.robertweidman.com. You have been listening to the Funk Soul Cafe with your host, Robert Batista. Look for my free short stories, Carmela's Dream and My Baby Has No Name, on smashwords.com. My guest has been debut author, veteran, and so much more, Robert Weiderman. And his fascinating new book is called Unexpected Prisoner, Memoir of a Vietnam PMW. Make sure you get your copy today. Thank you so much, Robert, for being my guest on the Funk Soul Cafe. Thank you for inviting me, Robert. Enjoyed it. It, it. it was a blast. It was very informative, and I'm so happy we did this show on Veterans Day, too. It doesn't get any better than that. Have a great evening, Robert. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.